So that was actually uh, a song from Prince of Caspian, uh, Return of the Lion. <laughs> so it is the 22nd of January, 2021. And today I want to talk about the climate that we are going through. As all of you see, uh, my remark yesterday for eight days was pretty much on point. And I wanted to express to you how uh, things uh, will be transpiring, uh, which is uh, pretty much a no-brainer. For months, I've been looking for a specific clip to play from 1990. And believe it or not, I, I just found it on archive. So... Obviously, for years, I, I've been saying how everything is an illusion. How you are made to think that you, that the reality that you see has been constructed uh, organically by yourself. Well, I'll tell you what. Personal, you know, to relate it to something that I can express. When I found myself in 2017 attacked by a whole state wanting to probe me, violating all my rights, I uh, went to the courts with full confidence that all would be revealed, that violations against my rights would be transparent, apparent, no-brainer, and it would all be fixed. I went there and I said, this is America. He can't just do that. And the judiciary branch, well, the local one that is, and may have to do with something of the fact, I think he has like a loan on a lake house that's from the attorney general's bank. I don't know. Maybe that played into it. But what I can tell you is I was looking for someone to save me. And I look no further than the law, the law of the land. I wanted a jury trial. I wanted, you know, uh, even though it was civil, I wanted discovery. I wanted to depose. I was denied all of that. Well, it is through trials and juries and discovery and testimony that truth comes out. So what we're going to have is a lot of truth, and you can't put that genie back in the bottle. This is what you are to see. 
So uh, many times I've made references to technological advancements and the fact that we have advanced as a civilization uh, via technology and have explained that this indeed is the cause of why you are so mesmerized, so unable to see through the truth. As we advance technologically, it just gives tools and weapons, refining into a more sophisticated way, a more sophisticated approach for the destruction of human freedom. As throughout history we have seen, through various empires and tyrants. There's one axiom that they hold true. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. This is how it is. They are trying to give you the illusion that being a free man, a free person, no longer serves a state, you're basically obsolete. Obsolete. You have to understand that any state, any government, any regime, any empire, any monarchy, any ideology that fails to recognize dignity of man and the rights of mankind, the innate and inalienable rights of freedom is in itself obsolete. So for us to understand just how far this goes, I thought I can read to you the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence in Congress on July 4th, 1776 was signed. It was a unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. And it reads, when in, the, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare them the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure the rights, governments instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Consent of the governed, right? <laughs> that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. 
Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to the right. You know, this is one of the most important parts. Let me just reiterate. Governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils sufferable than to the right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. This is key. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Interesting, right? Their future security. This is in your Declaration of Independence. In it. It tells you everything you need and should be, you need to know and should be doing. Such has been the patience, sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repealed, repeated injuries and usurpations, all having a direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. Hmm. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he was utterly neglected to attend to them. Hmm. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislature, legislative bodies at places that are unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with mainly firmness his invasions, his rights upon the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolution to call others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of the invasion from without and convulsions within. Hmm. Sounds very familiar right now. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for the purpose of obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass to others and encourage their migrations hither and raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. 
He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will done for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has exceeded a multitude of new offices and sent there swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in lines of peace, standing armies without consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent and superior to the civil power. He has combined with all others, subject us to jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops that are not ours for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for many murders, which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefit of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to try for pretend offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it in at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. Hmm. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, savaged our coast, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to compete uh, to complete the work of deaths, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbaric ages and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. It sounds so familiar. So familiar. Doesn't it? He has constrained our fellow citizens, taken captive the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. Hmm. Karens. He has executed domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In this case, it would be the savage left that they employ, Antifa. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. These are all the things they brought as evidence as to why they were declaring independence. 
This is what our forefathers did. This is what they dealt with. Very similar. Only now we're more technologically advanced. So it's a bit different. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our brothers, our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislator to extend the unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We need to be reminded of that. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and our correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and consignity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. Wow, right? We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare. Exactly what we've been declaring for a while, isn't it, guys? Four years now making these declarations of independence from a government that has been rabid and taken over. That these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. That, in essence, you guys, is the Declaration of Independence. And they note, and that as free and independent states, they all have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right to do. Independent. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. When that actually meant something. This is how they declared their independence. This is exactly how they declared their independence. And the thing is, many of you might think sacred honor, our fortunes, our lives, you have to understand how they took over you. So I'm going to introduce you to a, an amazing author. I know a lot of people read George R. Orwell and whatnot. But um, a guy by the name of Neil Postman, I actually found a video of him, like I said, that I was looking for. I want you to, to, to think. Whenever you think, you know, 1984 George Orwell. Well, Orwell feared that there were people that were going to ban books. Huxley, another writer, right? 
feared that there would be no reason to ban a book because nobody would want to read one. Orwell feared that the truth would be hidden from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In a book called A Brave New World uh, that was written, they were controlled by inflicting pleasure. Orwell feared that we will fear that fear will ruin us. Huxley feared that uh, feared that desire will ruin us. So, uh, Neil um, Postman in his book, uh, it's called "Amusing Ourselves to Death," is incredible, and this is where you understand what psyops really, really are. This is it. These are what psyops really, really are. They make you forget exactly what is real and what is not. They confuse you to the point that you don't know if you're coming or going. And when truth is in front of you, sometimes you can't even tell it's in front of you. Let's remember this little stint from 2020 where we all enjoyed it and there was a lot of truth. And it seemed like, even Hollywood was taunting us with truth. I'm, I'm hosting these awards, so I don't care anymore. Um, I'm joking. I never did. Um, NBC clearly don't care either. Fifth time. So, I mean, Kevin Hart was fired from the Oscars because of some offensive tweets. Hello. <laughs> Lucky for me, the Hollywood foreign press can barely speak English. And they've no idea what Twitter is. So I got offered this gig by fax. So let's go out with a bang. Let's have a laugh at your expense, shall we? Remember, they're just jokes. We're all going to die soon, and there's no sequel. So, yeah, remember that. Um, but you all look lovely, all doled up. You came here in your limos. I came here in a limo tonight, and the license plate was made by Felicity Huffman. So, no, shush. It's her, it's her daughter I feel sorry for, okay? That must be the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to her. And her dad was in Wild Hogs. So, lots of big celebrities here tonight. I mean, legends, icons, yeah? Look, at this table alone, uh, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. But, Baby Yoda. Uh, oh, that's, that's Joe Pesci, sorry. Um, I love you, man. Don't have me whacked. Um, but tonight isn't just about the people in front of the camera. In this room are some of the most important TV and film executives in the world. People from every background, but they all have one thing in common. They're all terrified of Ronan Farrow. He's coming for you. He's coming for you. Look, talking of all you perverts, it was a big year. It was a big year for paedophile movies. Um, surviving R. Kelly, Leaving Neverland, Two Popes. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. I don't care. I don't care. Many talented people of colour were snubbed in major categories. Um, 
Unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that. The Hollywood foreign press are all very, very racist. So, <laughs> fifth time. So, we were going to do an in memoriam this year, but when I saw the list of people that had died, it wasn't diverse enough. It just, no. It was mostly white people. And I thought, nah, not on my watch. So, maybe next year. Let's. Let's see what happens. No one cares about movies anymore. No one goes to the cinema. No one really watches network TV. Everyone's watching Netflix. This show should just be me coming out going, well done, Netflix, you win everything. Good night. But no, no, we've got to drag it out for three hours. You could binge watch the entire first season of Afterlife instead of watching this show. That, that's a show about a man who wants to kill himself because his wife dies of cancer. And it's still more fun than this. Okay? Spoiler alert, um, season two is on the way, so in the end, he obviously didn't kill himself. Just like Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Shut up! I know he's your friend, but I don't care. <laughs> you had to make your own way here, your own plane, didn't you? Right. But m seriously, most films are awful. Lazy. Remakes. Sequels. I've heard a rumour there might be a sequel to Sophie's Choice. I mean, that'd just be Meryl Streep going, well, it's got to be this one then. <laughs> All the best actors have jumped to Netflix and HBO, you know, and the actors who do Hollywood movies now do fantasy adventure nonsense. They wear masks and capes and really tight costumes. Their job isn't acting anymore. It's going to the gym twice a day and taking steroids, really. Have we got, a, have we got an award for most ripped junkie? No. No point. We know he'd win that. Um, Martin Scorsese, the greatest living director, made the news for his controversial comments about the Marvel franchise. He said they're not real cinema and they remind him of theme parks. I agree. Although I don't know what he's doing hanging around theme parks. He's not big enough to go on the rides, is he? <laughs> it's tiny. <laughs> right. The Irishman was amazing. It was amazing. Um, that, it was. My, my, it was great. Uh, long, but amazing. Um, it wasn't the only epic movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, nearly three hours long. Leonardo DiCaprio attended the premiere, and by the end, his date was too old for him. So... <laughs> Even Prince Andrew's like, come on, Leo, mate, you know. You're nearly 50, son. Um, the world got to see James Corden as a fat pussy. He was also in the movie Cats, but no one saw that. Um, and the reviews, oh, shocking. I saw one that said, this is the worst thing to happen to cats since dogs, right? <laughs> but Dame Judi Dench defended the film, saying it was the role she was born to play, because she... I can't do this next joke. <laughs> because she loves nothing better than plonking herself down on the carpet Lifting her leg and licking her. Furball, <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> furball. She's old school. Um, 
It's the last time, who cares? Oh. Apple roared into the, the TV game with a morning show. A superb drama, yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing, made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So, if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So, if you win, right, come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your God. And so... It's already three hours long. Right, let's do the first award. The first award. The first award is for best actor in a television series, musical or comedy. To present the award are a couple of actors off the telly. What can I say? Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. In a little while, we're going to see a, a short clip from The Irishman. Um, it's 88 minutes long. Right. Welcome back. Still having a good time? Good. As you know, the meal tonight was all vegetables, as are the members of the Hollywood Foreign Press. Please welcome their president, Lorenzo Soria. Hello, we're back. Um, Knives Out has three nominations tonight. Yeah. See what can happen if you don't dress people up as cats. It's, it's that easy. Hello. Welcome back. Um, I've got nothing negative to say about these next two presenters because the big one could snap me in half. So please welcome Zoe Kravitz and Jason Momoa. Amazing. Um, a lot of controversy uh, about our next category. No female directors were nominated this year. Not one. I mean, that, that's bad. Um, I have, genuinely, I've had a word with the Hollywood Foreign Press, and they've guaranteed that will never happen again. Um, no, because working with all the major studios, um, they've agreed to go back the way things were a few years ago, when they didn't even hire women directors, and that will solve the problem. You're welcome. Kill me. We're nearly done. Jesus. Three, it's already... Right, um, last one, last one. Come on, guys. Our next presenter starred in Netflix's Bird Box. A movie where people survive by acting like they don't see a thing. Sort of like working for Harvey Weinstein. You did it. You, I didn't. You did it. Please welcome Sandra Bullock. That's it. Good night. Thank you.
Please donate to Australia. Have a great time. Get drunk. Take your drugs. There are some people that will tell the world and in their face exactly who they are. Um, I wanted to point that out. Uh, you know, he, I wanted you guys to see that they've been doing it in your face. Now, before I um, play the clip that I wanted to play for you um, that I was looking for, um, I wanted you to understand uh, what it means um, to be censored and why it happens. So I found this really awesome. I'm a really big fan of the Twilight Zone. And I found this really nice clip where it talks about uh, the 10 most shocking twists and endings. And number 10 was The Real Monsters. I don't know if you guys that have ever watched the Twilight Zone, but damn, they were pretty on point. This is about um, how people are manipulated and how instead of killing people, you could just gaslight the heck out of them and they will do all the work for you. And this is exactly what PSYOPs are for. Uh, they gaslight you. Uh, they give you uh, the direction they want. They mesmerize you. They have you forfeit your rights. And they, make, they give you this illusion, which as you saw from the Declaration of Independence, it's not an illusion, still on paper. You're the one that's independent. But I want you to see this clip. It's like a minute. For those of you that can't see it, you'll be able to hear the narration because they're talking about the monsters are due on Maple Street and um, who the real monsters are, which is the people themselves. Real monsters. The monsters are due on Maple Street. When a strange object flies over a suburb, knocking out all the power, the residents of Maple Street at first assume it's something harmless. But as talk turns to aliens, it's not long before the neighbors violently turn on one another. They look just like humans, and it wasn't until the ship landed that... Tommy, please, son. Honey, don't talk like that. The morality lesson about the danger of witch hunts seems all set up. Until the twist is revealed. Aliens are watching, and now know that they can exploit human paranoia to take over Earth. The twist hammers home the message that not only will fear and division destroy us, they leave us open to manipulation and coercion. A message that remains all too relevant today. They pick the most dangerous enemy they can find, and it's themselves. That is 100% true. People are their worst enemies. People are their worst enemies because they bow down in fear. But also, they bow down for hedonism. I mean, people are forfeiting their rights in exchange for sensory pleasure, access to things, consumption. You know, this is how it is. They persuade you and condition you. And they've been doing this for decades. Rather than physically coercing you. And that is the most incredible way to control a population. <laughs> so I'm going to read um, three, four paragraphs 
of um, the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, chapter one. It's called The Medium is, a, is the Metaphor. At different times in our history, different cities have been the focal point of a radiating American spirit. In the late 18th century, for example, Boston was the center of a political a radicalism that ignited a shot heard around the world, a shot that could not have been fired any other place but the suburbs of Boston. At its report, all Americans, including Virginians, became Bostonians at heart. In the mid-19th century, New York became the symbol of the idea of a melting pot America, or at least a non-English one, as the wretched refused a wretched refuse from all over the world disembarked at Ellis Island and spread over the land their strange languages and even stranger ways. In the earliest 20th century, Chicago was the city of big shoulders and heavy winds came to symbolize the industrial energy and dynamicism of America. If there's a statue of a hog butcher somewhere in Chicago, then it stands as a reminder of the time when America was railroads, cattle, steel mills, and entrepreneurial adventures. If there is so much, if there is no such statue, there ought to be. Just as there is a statue of a Minuteman to recall the age of Boston, and the Statue of Liberty recalls the age of New York. Today, and he wrote this in the 80s, Today, we must look to the city of Las Vegas, Nevada, as a metaphor of our national character and, and aspiration. It's a symbol of 30-foot-high cardboard picture of a slot machine and a chorus girl. For Las Vegas is a city entirely devoted to the idea of entertainment, and such proclaims the spirit of a culture in which all public discourse increasingly takes the form of entertainment our politics, religion, news, athletics, education, and commerce have been transformed into congenial adjuncts of show business, largely without protest or even much popular notice. The result is that we are a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death. As I write, the President of the United States is a former Hollywood movie actor one of his principal challengers in 1984 was once a featured player on television's most glamorous show of the 1960s, that is to say, an astronaut. Naturally, a movie has been made about his extraterrestrial adventure. Former nominee George McGovern has hosted the popular television show Saturday Night Live. So has a candidate of more recent vintage, the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Meanwhile, former President Richard Nixon, who once claimed he lost an election because he was sabotaged by makeup men, has offered Senator Edward Kennedy advice on how to make a serious run for the presidency, lose 20 pounds. Although the Constitution makes no mention of it, it would appear that fat people are now effectively excluded from running for high political office, probably bald people as well. Almost certainly, those whose looks are not significantly enhanced by the cosmetician's art. Indeed, we may have reached the point where cosmetics has replaced ideology as the field of expertise over a politician must have a competent, have competent control. America's journalists, for example, television newscasters, have not missed the point. Most spend more time with their hair dryers than their scripts. With the result that they comprise the most glamorous group of people this side of Las Vegas. 
Although the Federal Communications Act makes no mention of it, those without camera appeal are excluded from addressing the public about what is called the news of the day. Those with camera appeal can command salaries exceeding $1 million a year. American businessmen discovered long before the rest of us that the quality and usefulness of their goods are subordinate to the artifice of their display. That in fact, half the principles of capitalism as praised by Adam Smith or condemned by Karl Marx are irrelevant. Even the Japanese, who are said to make better cars than Americans, know that economics is less science than performing art, as Toyota's yearly advertising budget confirms. Not long ago, I saw Billy Graham join with Shecky Green, Red Buttons, Dionne Warwick, Milton Berle, and other theologians in tribute to George Burns, who was celebrating himself for surviving 80 years in show business. The Reverend Graham exchanged one-liners with Burns about making preparations for eternity. Although the Bible makes no mention of it, the Reverend Graham assured the audience that God loves those who make people laugh. It was an honest mistake. He merely mistook NBC for God. Dr. Worth Westheimer is a psychologist who has a popular radio program in a nightclub act in which she informs her audience about sex in all of its infinite variety and in language once reserved for the bedroom and the street corners. She's almost as entertaining as Reverend Billy Graham. And she's been quoted as saying, I don't start out to be funny, but if it comes out that way, I use it. If they call me an entertainer, I say, that's great. When a professor teaches with a sense of humor, people walk away remembering. She did not say what they remember or what use their remembering is, but she has a point. It's great to be an entertainer. Indeed, in America, God favors all those who possess both talent and a format to amuse, whether they be preachers, athletes, entrepreneurs, politicians, teachers, or journalists. In America, the least amusing people are its professional entertainers. Culture watchers and warriors, those of the type who read books like this one, will know that the examples are not aberrations, but in fact, cliches. There's no shortage of critics who have observed and recorded the dissolution of public discourse in America and it is and its conversion into the arts of show business. But most of them, I believe, have barely begun to tell the story of the origin and meaning of this descent into vast triviality. Those who have written vigorously on the matter tell us, for example, that what is happening is a residue of exhausted capitalism or on the contrary, that it's tasteless fruit of the maturing of capitalism, or that it's neurotic aftermath of the age of Freud, or the retribution of allowing our God to perish, or that it all comes from the old standbys, greed, and ambition. I've attended carefully these explanations, and I do not say there is nothing to learn from them. Marxists, Freudians, Levi Straussians, and even creation scientists are not to be taken lightly. And in any case, I should be very surprised if the story I have to tell is anywhere near the whole truth. We are all, as Huxley says someplace, great abbreviators, meaning that none of us has the wit to know the whole truth, the time to tell if it we believed we did, or an audience so gullible to accept it. But you will find an argument here that presumes a clear grasp of the matter that many have come before. Its value, such as it is, 
resides in the directness of its perspective, which has its origins in observations made 2,300 years ago by Plato. It is an argument that fixes its attention on the forms of human conversation and postulates that how we are obliged to conduct such conversations will have the strongest possible influence on what ideas we can conveniently express and what ideas are convenient to express inevitably be, inevitably become important content of culture now this is a quite this is quite important this tells you the state in the 80s which is almost identical to that of the 2000s so with no further ado I want to start you off with Christopher Hitchens, The Tyranny of Censorship. Now, this is a very good clip. He had to say a lot. A lot of people discuss censorship as, you know, big tech just doing, sticking it to people. Well, there's a reason that people are censored. You censor the people that you fear the most, people that you know have the goods. Truth, truth, truth cannot be hidden. Truth is not obsolete. For as if you can speak your thoughts, you are free. But you know what's interesting is that freedom of speech is not really about what you're saying today. It really isn't. It's about what you're allowed to hear. Okay, it's about what you are allowed to hear. That's the key. So when you hear people censoring others, when you hear about censorship being banned off platforms, you must remember that it's them censoring you so you can't tell other people. They're not saying you can't say it. Oh, you could go say it while you're in the bathroom doing your business, showering, maybe with your friends at your house, maybe in your car, talk to yourself, but you, we don't want other people hearing it. That's key. Fire, 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 fire. Now you've heard it. Not shouted in a crowded theater, admittedly. As I realize, I seem now to have shouted it in the Hogwarts dining room. But the, the point is made, everyone knows the fatuous verdict of uh, the greatly overpraised Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who asked for an actual example of when it would be proper to limit speech or define it as an action, gave that of shouting fire in a crowded theater. It's very often forgotten what he was doing in that case was sending to prison a group of Yiddish-speaking socialists whose literature was printed in a language most Americans couldn't read opposing President Wilson's participation in the First World War and the dragging of the United States into this sanguinary conflict which the Yiddish-speaking socialists had fled from Russia to escape. In fact, it could be just as plausibly argued that the Yiddish-speaking socialists were jailed by the excellent and overpraised Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes were the real firefighters, were the ones who were shouting fire when there really was fire in a very crowded theater Indeed. And who is to decide? Well, keep that question, if you would, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I hope I may say comrades and friends, before your minds. I exempt myself from the speaker's kind offer of protection. 
that was uh, so generously proffered at the opening of this evening. Anyone who wants to say anything abusive about or to me is quite free to do so, and welcome, in fact, at their own risk. And, um, but before they do that, they must have taken, as I'm sure we all should, a short refresher course in the classic texts on this matter, which are John Milton's Areopagitica, Areopagitica being the great hill of Athens for discussion and free expression, um, Thomas Paine's introduction to the Age of Reason, and I would say a John Stuart Mill's essay on liberty, in which it is variously said, I'll, so I'll, I'll be very daring and summarize all three of these great gentlemen of the great tradition of especially English liberty um, in one go. What they say is, it's not just the right of the person who speaks to be heard. It is the right of everyone in the audience to listen and to hear. And every time you silence somebody, you make yourself a prisoner of your own action because you deny yourself the right to hear something. In other words, your own right to hear and be exposed is as much involved in all these cases as is the right of the other to voice his or her view. Indeed, as John Stuart Mill said, if all in society were agreed on the truth and beauty and value of one proposition, all except one person, it would be most important. In fact, it would become even more important that that one heretic be heard because we would still benefit from his perhaps outrageous or appalling view in more modern times. This has been put, I think, best by a personal heroine of mine, Rosa Luxemburg, who said that the freedom of speech is meaningless unless it means the freedom of the person who thinks differently. Um, my great friend, John O'Sullivan, former editor of the National Review, and my, I think probably my most conservative and reactionary Catholic friend, once said, uh, it's a tiny thought experiment, he says, if you hear the Pope saying, he believes in God, you think, well, the Pope's doing his job again today. If you hear the Pope saying he's really begun to doubt the existence of God, you begin to think he might be onto something. Well, if everybody in North America is forced to attend at school, uh, training in sensitivity on Holocaust awareness and is taught to study the final solution about which nothing was actually done, by this country or North America or the United Kingdom while it was going on. But as, let's say, as if in compensation for that, everyone's made to swallow an official and unalterable story now, and it's taught as the great moral exemplar, the moral equivalent of the morally lacking elements of the Second World War, the way of stilling our uneasy conscience about that combat. If that's the case with everybody, as it more or less is, and one person gets up and says, you know about this Holocaust, I'm not sure it even happened. In fact, I'm pretty certain it didn't. Indeed, I begin to wonder if the only thing is that the Jews brought a little bit of violence on themselves. That person doesn't just have a right to speak. That person's right to speak must be given extra protection because what he has to say must have taken him some effort to come up with, might be, might contain a grain of historical truth, um, might in any case give people to think about why do they know what they already think they know? How do I know that I know this except that I've always been taught this and never heard anything else? It's always worth establishing first principles. It's always worth saying, what would you do if you met a Flat Earth Society member? Come to think of it, how can I prove the Earth is round? Am I sure about the theory of evolution? I know it's supposed to be true. 
Here's someone who says there's no such thing. It's all intelligent design. How sure am I of, of my own views? Don't take refuge in the false security of consensus and the feeling that whatever you think, you're bound to be okay because you're in the safely moral majority. One of the proudest moments of my life, that's to say, in the recent past, has been defending the British historian David Irving, who is now in prison in Austria for nothing more than the potential of uttering an unwelcome thought on Austrian soil. He didn't actually say anything in Austria. He wasn't even accused of saying anything. He was accused of perhaps planning to say something that violated an Austrian law that says only one version of the history of the Second World War may be taught in our brave little Tyrolean Republic. The Republic that gave us Kurt Waldheim as Secretary General of the United Nations, a man wanted in several countries for war crimes. You know, the country that gave, that has Jörg Haider, the leader of its own fascist party, in the cabinet that sent David Irving to jail. You know the uh, two things that have uh, made Austria famous, given it its reputation, by any chance? Just while I've got you. I hope there are some Austrians here to be upset by it. <laughs> well, it, it pity if not, but the two great achievements of Austria are to have convinced the world that Hitler was German and Beethoven was Viennese. Now to this proud record they can add, they have the courage finally to face their past and lock up a British historian who's committed no crime except that of thought and writing. And that's a scandal. And I can't find a seconder usually when I propose this, but I don't care. I don't need a seconder. My own opinion is enough for me, and I claim the right to have it defended against any consensus, any majority, anywhere, any place, any time. Now, I don't know how many of you don't feel you're grown up enough to decide this for yourselves and think you need to be protected from David Irving's edition of the Goebbels diaries, for example, out of which I learned more about the Third Reich than I had from studying Hugh Trevor Roper and A.J.P. Taylor combined when I was at Oxford. But for those of you who do, I'd recommend another uh, short course of revision. Um, go again and see not just the film and the play, but read the text of... Uh, Robert Bolt's wonderful play, Man for All Seasons. Some of you must have seen it. Um, where Sir Thomas More decides that he would rather die uh, than lie or betray his faith. And at one moment, More is arguing with a particularly vicious witch-hunting prosecutor, a servant of the king and a hungry and ambitious man. And Moore says, What would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Yes. I'd cut down every law in England to do that. Oh? And when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper? The laws all being flat. This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast. Man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Bear in mind, ladies and gentlemen, that every time you violate or propose to violate the free speech of someone else, you, in potentia, you're making a rod for your own back. Because the other question raised by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes is simply this. Who's going to decide? To whom do you award the right to decide which speech is harmful? Or who is the harmful speaker? or to determine in advance what are the harmful consequences going to be that we know enough about in advance to prevent. To whom would you give this job? So to whom do you give this job? Do we give this job to who? Social media? The leftists? 
Who do we give this job to? That's the question you should all ask yourself. What, who is assigned the right to censure free speech? And the thing is, is that every single one of you have been complicit with the structures of today and the power that they have. And this is a fact. We have allowed them to maintain this power. Now, I'm going to take you to 10 years ago where the Arabs, yes, you heard it correctly, the Arabs, Al Jazeera, had done a report on a new history of censorship in the West. This is one of the most incredible things you'll see and hear with um, John Perry Barlow of the EFF who was claiming that, you know, all these things that have happened now 10 years later were all talked about back then. Social media has proven to be a powerful force in helping to mobilize people who seek change against difficult odds. As we've seen in the Arab world, it's enabled people to organize despite government attempts to control information. But when does freedom on the web interfere with public safety and order? Following the London riots, many argued that social media and instant message services like BlackBerry's BBM actually helped criminals organize their looting and put citizens at risk. We've also been covering another story that I want to take a video of just now so you can see some of what's been happening on the ground. This is in San Francisco, where we've reported about how their public transport system, known as BART, shut down cell service on their transit lines in order to disrupt communications between protesters. Now, BART officials claim they did this to protect the safety of passengers and prevent rail disruption. But these two events, the London riots and the BART cell disruption, prompted an online debate about the nature of freedom and whether or not governments ever have a right to shut down communications, even temporarily. So we're asking, why is net freedom considered something to be desired for some countries and a threat to safety in others? Joining us now from California is John Perry Barlow. He's a former Wyoming rancher and he's a lyricist for rock band, The Grateful Dead. He's the co-founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which focuses on freedom of speech and privacy online. He was also the first to use the term cyberspace. Let's see if we can get John on air. Can you hear us? Okay, so we've lost our Skype for just a second, but we're going to come back to him momentarily. Before we get deeper into that, a lot of people have been discussing this issue, and Azita, I'd love to get some of your thoughts on it. Basically, they're saying, well, everyone was upset when Mubarak shut down the internet, but now in authorities in England, authorities in the United States are planning to do similar things. Is there a difference? Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the major difference is that um, in those situations, it's it's a violent thing that was brewing, where in these situations, it's just about kind of opinion, mm -hmm. minus UK, where it did become a violent situation. But I don't know in those cases, if you can use the word protesters to describe the same behavior, or if they were just looters all along. So listen to what she's saying. This is 10 years ago. She's like, well, one of it was just about opinions. And that's why they shut it down. The other one was about, you know, safety. So now they have intertwined, okay, your speech with safety. You understand? And this is how they are putting it together. It took them 10 years to get you where they wanted it. 10 years it took them to take you and put you where they wanted to put you. Now let's skip over to, to John. I hate women like that. She's so just random acts of violence.
with us as well. I think we've got also joining us Mike Butcher. He's the editor of TechCrunch Europe and digital advisor to the mayor of London. Welcome both of you to the stream. Uh, I actually want to start with you, John. We've heard these reports. I just mentioned to Azida and Ahmed that there are efforts to shut down the uh, internet in the BART system. I know that you're uh, very familiar with the Bay Area and you actually started utilizing, uh, I believe you started this hashtag Mubartak. Talk to us about the connection you made between what the BART is doing in San Francisco and what Mubarak did in Egypt. Well, you know, on the one hand, they're not particularly comparable because uh, we're talking about a very specific and isolated uh, protest in one sense, and we're talking about a, a, a revolution of an entire society in the other. However, they're related in this regard. Uh, anytime you have authority trying to control protest by shutting down channels of communication, you've set a precedent that could become generalized and, and would be very dangerous. Uh, I think the, the best way to deal with revolution is to give everybody a chance to speak with one another. Uh, and also the best way to, to manage protest, I think, is to have channels of communication that are open. Well, this is an, an interesting point. I actually want to take this to you, Mike, because you uh, did stir a bit of controversy with some comments you made on Twitter uh, leading uh, in the wake of the London riots. And I'm curious to get your thoughts. I mean, is there ever an instance where the government's interest in controlling public order exceeds the interest of the public in having access to free communication? Well, let me just firstly correct you. Um, I was actually, you're actually misquoting me. Um, I, I did actually say on Twitter uh, that I was extremely concerned about the role of BlackBerry uh, during the London riots. This was not actually after the fact, this was during the riots when uh, very large parts of London were actually burning down. Uh, but, but let me clarify my position. The point is, is that you have, uh, is that um, uh, it's, it's come to light that uh, the that being able to use social media and be able to actually um, find out what was going on with the riots, certainly on the BlackBerry messaging service, uh, was of great service to the authorities and also to people trying to, and also via, via Facebook and Twitter, people trying to avoid the trouble areas was uh, on, on using these social media was um, extremely important. Um, and and uh, so it, there's no, obviously... There's no real re there's no reason to sort of shut anything this down, but there's also a a, a contextual point here, which is that there's uh, the riots and looting in Britain were was not a political protest; it was out and out uh, wanton crime criminality. Um, that's not to justify any of the uh, uh, any kind of sort of state snooping, of course. And I think this is the point that uh, you're probably wanting to make, which is that there is a thin end of the wedge where uh, as, uh, people in authority and government can actually use uh, the sort of fear of crime and the fear of incitement to violence as a, a sort of a, a Trojan horse to start to well, undermine civil liberties. Absolutely, Mike. And, and there's, another, there's another point here as well, because we did cover this uh, issue of London riots last week, and we had a guest on our set who... spoke with some very different ideas than what you mentioned, basically arguing that there are underlying reasons why people are disaffected in London. And we actually have our audience on Twitter making similar comments as we speak. Yeah, John, there's one tweet from Remroom saying, uh, rather than point a finger outward, the UK government should take a look at disillusionment and discrimination plaguing a number of communities. So perhaps these aren't protests and you want to call them looters, but their motivations 
must come from, you know, this economic disparity and, and you know, arguably the class system we see in London. Can't that be a, a point? I think it's fairly obviously a point. Uh, people don't riot and loot unless they're disaffected. And, and John, you know, just quickly with the BART uh, story, someone tweeted and Dillahan said, no, BART is just as beholden to the U.S. Constitution as anyone else. That includes the First Amendment. And the reason I bring the BART up again is just because there's an argument to be made that they do have the right, since it was on such a local level, to disrupt service locally in the BART system. Would you disagree with that? I would disagree with it strongly because the First Amendment to the United States Constitution clearly defines uh, the right to freedom of assembly mm -hmm. and the, the state can make no law or action which, which contravenes right, uh, the, that right to freedom of assembly. If you are shutting down the means by which assembly can take place, you're also contravening assembly. Now, uh, Mike, can you still hear us? Yes, certainly, yes. Yes. Did you hear that? So if assembly is on social media, that be YouTube, that be Facebook, that be Twitter, Instagram, DLive, Twitch, you know, library, whatever. If assembly is on those platforms and you shut down access to it, that is also a violation of your First Amendment. It's not just the people themselves. It's the environment. So you are not a free platform when you shut down the venue of assembly. So right now the president has been shut out. So that's fine. But we do have an alleged president. So if they shut down access to people to a platform of assembly, that, in fact, is a violation of your First Amendment. Not so much just shutting you up, but disallowing you to have that platform. See, if I was parlor, I wouldn't argue about, you're racist, you're just nah, you're just nah. You're like, you're offering services, and what you are doing is violating rights of free speech by disallowing areas of assembly. Now, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I think that's a solid argument right there. So I want to bring back this issue that was just raised. And you had mentioned, you know, how social media was used as a tool to sort of uh, countermand what was happening with the riots. I just wanted to, to be clear. Were you also referring to the, United, the UK government's efforts to get BlackBerry to help them infiltrate BBM service? Well, um, the, the, the actual detail of that is that, um, is that the BlackBerry and Research in Motion that owns BlackBerry, uh, said to, uh, said that they would cooperate with the authorities, the same as, as ha happened with Facebook and with Twitter. And, um, and at the moment, all the government said is they would, they would, uh, conduct a review. Um, subsequently to that, very interesting, the Metropolitan Police had come out and said that the, the ability to monitor, to, to look at the BlackBerry BBM messages, and this is not talking, we're not talking about a technical thing here. We're talking about uh, confiscating the phones of rioters and actually just looking at some of the incoming messages uh, uh, during the riots and the, the ability of the police to be able to just uh, see what was going on, help them uh, by all means. And in fact, in fact, they've actually turned down. They've actually said that they don't actually need any technical means themselves to monitor in any kind of real-time sense the uh, social media. And so, so it's rather interesting that there's a sort of a gap widening up between the police and the politicians on this subject.
I want to bring this back to you, John, before we come back to our audience and Azita, I want to get some of your thoughts as well. But John, is it, are we reaching a point now where authorities do reach out to companies like Facebook, like Twitter, like Research in Motion that creates the BlackBerry, that we need to be concerned not only about issues of state sponsorship or state censorship, pardon me, but also of corporate censorship? Well, I think corporations, uh, especially BlackBerry, uh, imply a certain degree of of protection of identity to their users. And BlackBerry, I mean, one of the reasons that people use BlackBerry... Stop one second. Let's stop this one second. So what did he say? That using the BlackBerry gives a form of protection to the users. What if I told you about the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment blending the lines? I wanted you to let that percolate for 48 hours before I brought this on so that you can understand where I'm going with this. Because one thing you should know is that your uh, identity is not secure at Twitter because they document your device ID, they document your account for your phone, and therefore they are able to identify you in whole, therefore they have your identity records without demanding you to upload a passport or a photo ID. Barry is because it's thought that that BBMs are highly uh, secure and encrypted. Uh, and if if that assurance is no longer valid, then I think what you've done is is pass through a membrane that will be very hard to pass back through. Mm -hmm. uh, if you start monitoring encrypted individual messages uh, without a warrant, uh, you know, where does that end? Azita, where does it end? Is there anywhere where people can safely communicate privately? I think one of the issues with this is that it's such a slippery slope. You know, uh, on one hand, there are some security issues that we should be monitoring and perhaps certain people that aren't great, um, that don't have good intentions. On the other hand, when you start leading down that road. Did you hear what she said? There are certain in individuals that we should be monitoring that aren't that great. This chick has a title called Chief Idea o Officer of Life of Love Social. What the heck? Who is she to decide who isn't that great and who is supposed to be monitored? This is from 10 years ago, you guys, 10. So Mike, quickly, Mike, you did make some comments earlier about the difference between what's happening in Egypt and what's happening to London. Who is to determine when actions are of a political nature and when they're simply uh, maybe just anarchic? Is it the government that gets to determine when a public uh, outcry or action is justified? Well, I think this is, uh, this is a very good point. Um, th there's a real problem here is you're trying to effectively, in a kind of minority report manner, trying to determine a sort of pre-crime, trying to work out if somebody is about to commit a crime or is, about, is saying something political or whatever. And really, we are, taught, we are really crawling on the bottom of the ocean here right now. It's absolutely very, very hard to work out if somebody is actually, say, for instance, warning about a crime or, or talking about something political as opposed to inciting somebody to commit violence or in, in, inciting something else that might be damaging to society. So, so it's, that's the issue, you know, and I think we're really a very, very early days. And it's, it's going to be very, very hard to even determine this. So I think it's really something that people just want to step away from uh, right, right away. John, if I could, if I could jump in, I, yeah. I think one of the real issues with cyberspace, and this has been true from the very beginning, is that there is a willingness of authority to conflate the image or the expression with the with the actual deed. 
so for example, uh, you have uh, very repressive laws relating to the image of child pornography where the deed itself is sufficiently evil and sufficiently illegal that the, the focus should be on, on uh, arresting those who are actively pursuing this and not those that are uh, expressing an interest in it. Uh, and this is another case. I mean, here you have people who are talking about rioting. Well, talking about rioting, uh, like every other form of speech, is protected, uh, at least in this country, and should be. That's an interesting point. And actually, there's a, a tweet that we can... It's a very disturbing point, but a very good one that he made, which is what? Why are we going after saying we're going to be censoring all speech, right? When we should be targeting the people that are doing the illegal activities. So then there's no speech about those activities. Therefore, you're conflating the two. And again, this is the whole predictive analytics. This is the whole, this is how they silence you. This is the whole, how they have been keeping you asleep, completely asleep. This is treasonous. But, you know, Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution talks about the judicial power, and we're going to get into that in the second hour. But before we do that, I want to tell you about another person that was censored. I want you to listen to this. This is just a portion that I want you to listen to. Which I usually talk about in every show anyway. Um, that you should check out. Daniel Musical is a musical I wrote on the book of Daniel. So you want to help support us, you can do that. Again, Daniel Musical. And then I have another book, another couple books. One is Secret Christianity, which I was just putting up. I thought it was up already. And then this that I wrote a while back. And I'm going to be adding more plays. So, and it censored for what? Censored and killed Jesus. Censored. Censored for what? Censored and killed for his free speech. Jesus was not a mean guy. He wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't a criminal, you know, at least not in the sense that we would think they might consider it a crime, the free speech that he was enacting. But that's the point. It's like it was for his speech. You know, it wasn't because he was a murderer that they killed him or a violent guy or a cruel guy. Like, oh, let's kill Jesus. He's a horrible guy. No, he was actually an amazing guy, right? Healing people, loving people, caring for people. But it was his speech that ultimately is what they killed him over. They censored him and they killed him. Let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at that. So we're going to dig into the ancient text here. So we talk about Jesus censored for free speech. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. The ancient text. So we've talked about that before. I think it was like a year ago or maybe seven, eight months ago where I told you. Jesus was crucified, not because he did anything, but because he was speaking and he wasn't allowed to speak. And it wasn't so much not allowed to speak. People were just not supposed to listen because thoughts are ideas and ideas are dangerous and they know it. All right, let's take a look at this. So Jesus didn't mince words. You know, a lot of times Jesus is sort of painted as this figure of kind of Oh, he's a nice shepherd. You know, you see these pictures, paintings of him carrying a lamb, <laughs> which I'm not saying he didn't carry lambs or didn't wasn't loving in that way. But that's often the image that we get. He's just got a lamb. And he's just sort of this peaceful shepherd, shepherd boy, shepherd man, I guess you'd say. But Jesus was a hard hitter, man. I mean, 
that if that's your image of Jesus, you have not read the Bible. Okay? You're like, what do you mean I read the Bible? Yeah, well, go check it out because that's not the way the Bible describes Jesus. Jesus is not described as a sort of soft waif-like character who's just sort of, you know, wimpy and sort of a push around. I mean, this guy was intense. Jesus was intense. He used to drive people out of the temple with a whip. And I mean, he would turn over the tables. He would call people intense names, this description. I mean, you think, you think uh, it's so many to call names. Yeah, now, yes, profanity is wrong. Okay, that's, that is sinful. And that's in the Bible. And I'm, I'm going to do a show on that at some point. But Jesus, and I wouldn't even say he called them names. I guess that, that was, that's probably not, not the quite description. But he uses some very descriptive terms. I mean, calling them children of the devil. You know, that's kind of intense. Whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. That's intense. Brood of vipers. So it's kind of name calling, I guess. Um, you know, but he laid it out. Not, now he was right. <laughs> it wasn't so much a name calling as a descriptive term to describe what they actually were. But he would tell people to put a millstone around their neck and toss it in the ocean. You're better to do that than to lead one of my children astray. And he was intense. He was intense. Not that he was always intense. Not that he wasn't loving and lamb holding like, but he was definitely intense and would lay it out to people. So he didn't mince words, but he didn't hit anybody, didn't whack anybody. You know, if you didn't like what he's saying, you could leave. You could say, I'm not really interested in hearing Jesus today. He's too intense or whatever, right? You didn't have to hate the guy. You didn't have to attack the guy. You didn't have to kill the guy, right? But that's the situation he was in. And that's the situation we're in today where people are getting killed just for what they believe, just for what they practice, not even being as intense as Jesus, frankly. Most Christians are not intense like that. Maybe we need to be a little more intense like that. That's probably why part of the reason we're in the situation we're in is because we're not standing up for the faith. But nevertheless, they're still getting persecuted and attacked. Well, let's read a little bit of the ancient text as we explore what Jesus was persecuted for. It says, Jesus said to them, why is my language not clear to you? You know, and this is what we got with the mainstream media right now. You know, I did another show called, uh, is the fake media, the false prophet, you know, talking about the book of Revelation, but really they are the false prophet, but they're also the Pharisees. I mean, look at the Pharisees and compare them to today's fake media. I mean, you'll see so many parallels, it'll blow your mind. And the way they act, the way they behave, the self-righteousness, the condemnation, the, the wanting to just tear down and really shutting him down, always shutting him down and not wanting to hear the truth. You know, saying today, for example, there's no evidence, there's no evidence when all this evidence just keeps pouring out. You know, they avoid the truth. They don't want to see the truth. They only want to see and promote what they want to see and promote. And Jesus dealt with the same thing back then. You know, these Pharisees, religious leaders, they're following him around. They're seeing everything he's doing, but they refuse to accept it. They're not willing to accept that he's the Christ. They're not willing to accept the miracles. Oh, he must be demon possessed. He's doing miracles. And Jesus is like, um, why would Satan be doing miracles? Driving out Satan? That, that doesn't make any sense. Obviously, I'm serving God here. I'm trying to promote Christ. I'm trying to promote the gospel. He is Christ, but he's trying to promote the gospel. He's promoting righteousness and helping people, serving people. So Jesus addresses this with this. And Jesus said to them, why is my language not clear to you? Because 
You, and he answers the question, because you are unable to hear what I say. Hello, open your ears. That's me saying that. Open your ears, right? Ears to hear. And that's what you have in our lamestream mafia media today is they don't have ears to hear because they have an agenda, a wicked agenda. They don't want righteousness. So they want to hear anything. They want to twist and turn and make it say what they want it to say. They don't want to hear the truth. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me? Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. It's pretty intense, lays it out. Children of the devil, right? So I just found this guy today because I was trying to find someone analyzing how Jesus was actually crucified for censorship. And, you know, it struck me a bit because I have said pretty much the same thing and I didn't realize you couldn't hear me for three years because your ears couldn't hear it. And your gut is that divine voice, that divine communication that you have within you. And until you are able to hone into that voice, that gut feeling, that understanding, you can't see and you can't hear because you cannot fathom or understand. While many, many, many people that have listened to me, uh, have read my articles, have interacted with me, uh, they um, fall into these rabbit holes where I'm like, well, how do you believe this? And how can you see this, but not this? And that goes back to the way we've been groomed to listen, the way we've been educated to listen. And um, now, at a time of turmoil, at a time of crisis, not just for our nation, but most of you realize it's for our actual liberties and freedoms, we shall arise. And this is why I have many times said, lots of things will come out of it from this place, but it won't be heroes, right? You'll see heroes where you didn't expect. People that are hated, censored, silenced, are suddenly coming to the surface. And those that were deified, followed, funded. I listened to him. Oh, he did a great analysis on this. She did this. She did that. Again, you weren't listening to the frequencies to understand exactly what was being told to you. The majority of those things that you have attached yourself to is fear porn. Fear porn, because fear is, whoa, weaponizing fear is terrorism. So in essence, you've been terrorized, even by people that tell you nice things. They terrorize you into listening to their nice things. And, and that's key. Because many of us have had the delusion of freedom, and you must understand that this nation was always a proponent of freedom, but the state, the deep state that has been governing it has no use for any free man. No use. The more you speak, the more you think, 
the more you will be silenced and possibly crucified. Again, any state, any administration that fails to recognize the unalienable rights of man, which is the freedom of thought, the freedom of speech, and the freedom to simply be free, is indeed obsolete. It is not you. It is not you. So we're going to take a break while listening to something quite um, interesting that I found. Because it will be times now that we will have to see who we really are. And, and, and I've said this a few times, and I sound like a broken record. But it's important um, that we do know thyself and trust yourself. Have faith in yourself. Have faith in humanity and trust your gut. Are we made to take care of each other? Or is it everyone for themselves? It is one of the most fundamental questions about humanity. And looking at the many stories that deal with this question, there seems to be a pervasive belief, though sometimes only implied as a sort of gut feeling, or hidden beneath the antics of a slightly too lovable villain, that deep down, we are on our own, that we are not our brother's keeper. Everybody is awful these days. It's enough to make anyone crazy. My brother left you to die. That's what people do. Even when proven wrong, when we are shown as decent, cooperative, the belief persists, often expressing itself as the argument that our true nature is mitigated by the comfort of a relatively safe society, that morality and generosity are luxuries that only come to us when the world allows it to. I'll show you. When the chips are down, these, uh, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. This becomes especially clear in post-apocalyptic stories, which explore exactly what would happen when we are stripped of all securing structures, released from all rules, laws and constraints, when our human nature is laid bare and our true selves are revealed. More often than not, the mirror we are presented with shows an image of human beings who are fundamentally selfish, aggressive and suspicious of each other, who exist in a world where when all safeguards are down, it is every man for himself, where might is right and kindness is a weakness to be exploited. Just help him. He's gonna die. Die anyway. It is a rather depressing reflection and disheartening for those who hope for a better future. And it really is a matter of hope too. Because how can we imagine a brighter tomorrow? How can we envision real progress when our civilization is this fragile, when it always seems to be on the brink of falling apart? Or, as Walter M. Miller asks in his novel A Canticle for Leibowitz, if we are born mad, where is the hope of heaven? But what if this belief about our human nature is mistaken? What if we are wrong about who we really are? Over the course of human history, there have been countless attempts to uncover the roots of human behavior, to understand our most fundamental nature, our blueprint, as it were. One influential philosopher on this subject was Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes is most well known for his social contract theory, as presented in his famous work, Leviathan. 
Social contract theory assumes that the lives of human beings were by nature, in his words, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. To put it more eloquently, he argued that humans need some form of governance to keep themselves in check. For as long men live without a common power to keep them all in awe, he wrote, they are in a condition known as war, and it is a war of every man against every man. Get down! By war, he didn't necessarily mean a war with active combat, violence, and destruction. Rather, it is more of a state of continuous tension, of human beings living with fear of and suspicion towards each other. In this state, there would be no trust, no cooperation, there would be no society. And so he argued for the need of social contracts, the need for agreements, laws, treaties, for codes of conduct that allow us to build a civilization, that allow us to coexist in peace. See, they're morals. They're code. It's a bad joke. We've dropped at the first sign of trouble. Basically, it is a perspective that views civilized society as extremely fragile and believes that human beings, without the presence of social contracts, would regress to a more primal state, that they would become either vicious or victims. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Although Hobbes was not the only philosopher to propose a theory like this, and is therefore not solely responsible for turning this view of humanity into a common assumption, his work does adequately capture the essence of this belief which is still prevalent in so many stories today, especially those that involve calamities, disasters, or other events that break the everyday structures of our society. So the cops are gone and all of a sudden you want to shoot everybody? Well, yeah. In many of these stories, we see humans acting in panic. We see them becoming greedy, hostile, sometimes even downright hysterical. Needless to say, it is pretty obvious to see what the dominant belief is about who we are when all social contracts are broken. We are inherently a violent species. Wars, genocide, murder. The denial of our true selves is the problem. But according to author Rebecca Solnit, this image of the selfish human being that instantly regresses to savage behavior in times of disaster has little truth to it. In her book, A Paradise Built in Hell, Solnit covers decades of research on human behavior in times of disaster. From the bombings of World War II, we automatically and universally fall back to when things go wrong. Even when stripped of all comforts and constraints, we all react in fundamentally different ways. What do you need? A funeral. And among those many different ways in which we can react, she also found that... Contrary to popular belief, most people actually show qualities like generosity and empathy. They show courage and kindness. In the wake of an earthquake, a bombing, or a major storm, she writes, most people are altruistic, urgently engaged in caring for themselves and those around them, strangers and neighbors, as well as friends and loved ones. And I walked over the bridge and there was 10, 15, 20 feet of water everywhere. And you could start to hear the people screaming from the balconies and the rooftops. We see such a response in the documentary When the Levees Broke, which shows the myriad of ways in which ordinary people came to each other's aid in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Not just those who were directly affected by the disaster, 
but from as far away as Texas, hundreds of citizens came to the rescue of those in need, providing evacuation and other necessities like food, clothes, and shelter. There were citizen uh, first responders. There were people in neighborhoods who were carrying children and women and older people out on their backs, on their shoulders, making makeshift rafts. But a lot of just everyday people were out there from all walks of life, really putting their life on the line, diving in water, bringing out particularly people with Alzheimer's and dementia. We had an elderly lady back there and Nicholas, my nephew, and another two kids. I think it was three kids all together. And we was just going, get the stuff, helping the people, and day by day, we was bringing people to the bridge. These acts were, as Solnit would describe it, at once nothing special and a miracle. Chaos and deprivation turned into order and abundance by will, empathy, and resourcefulness. The response to Katrina was one that was overwhelmingly defined by this selflessness, bravery, and love for our fellow human beings. For Rutger Brechtman, the author of Humankind, A Hopeful History, it was but one of many examples that led him to propose the thesis that most people, deep down, are pretty decent. Like Solnit, Brechtman too bases his argument on a long history of documented human responses to disaster, all of which demonstrate how we tend to remain calm instead of panic, how we are more likely to become altruistic instead of selfish. They prove how the acts of kindness that disaster stories tend to frame as exceptional are actually not so exceptional at all, how you are in fact more likely to encounter helping hands than hostile others, and how, generally, a crisis brings out not the worst, but the best in us. The real reason all this is so important is because, as both authors also point out, beliefs matter. How we view ourselves and those around us strongly affects our attitude and our actions. Often the worst behavior in the wake of a calamity is on the part of those who believe that others will behave savagely, and that they themselves are taking defensive measures against barbarism. I'm just going to assume you're all criminals, because if we're honest, you probably are. In other words, if disasters reveal our generally good nature, they also reveal how the failure to believe in it can make things much, much worse. Sonnet wrote that the first rat to infect the disaster is rumor, and during Katrina the destructive consequences of this became painfully evident. Uh, the national media reported rampant rumors, and they were flying all over the place and nobody could verify them. Stories of violent crimes and savagery spread like wildfire, thereby turning people in need into people to be afraid of, people to be rescued into people to be kept away. Official rescue operations became heavily stifled, sometimes even replaced with active hostility as military forces were being deployed not to take care of victims, but to enforce law and order against an imagined enemy. They were going to put armed uh, police there. So did you hear that portion, that it was the mainstream media that uh, told the people that there were vicious people out? They were the ones that were spreading rumors. The media is evil, correct? I understand how um, many of you are starting to see it. It's been four years of seeing the media as the accelerant into where we are today. This is why I've been stressing Rather than listen to people or deify people or read things and wait for people to tell you what to do, 
I have been focusing on arming you with knowledge to understand yourself and understand how they implant these ideas into your mind that everyone is horrible, everyone is nasty, everyone is out for themselves. I've said the only quality that I detest in all humans is that of self-preservation. And that is why people in time of a, a crisis will leave people to die, will kill someone for uh, you know, a piece of bread, will step on the neck of those in front of them because it is completely and utterly just for self-preservation. And if people understand that to preserve yourself, you must preserve others as well, it makes sense. This is why it's important that people focus on themselves to see just how good things can be when you care of another. And this is why I've been trying to say it in a nice way that reason, reason is the advocate of self-preservation. Because when you start to reason and weigh out pros and cons of how you will respond to a person that just fell in front of you while you have an army of zombies behind you, and you sit there and say, well, if I stop to help this person up, then the zombies are going to catch up. That's your self-preservation, leaving the other person to die. And then you will run away and maybe die the next day or maybe 10 years from there. But you will remember that that person you left could have been alive too. And you have to live with that. Many people discount it kind of like you saw in, in the example where the young boy was like, help him. He's going to die. And he said, who cares? He's going to die anyway. Uh, reasoning reason, reason where you weigh pros and cons of how you respond to something is what kicks in self-preservation because all human beings are innately good. All of them. There is not one that is not born good because you are of divine descent. So let me continue this. And they were going to turn you back at gunpoint. This was Jefferson Parish police lined up with shotguns, would not let us cross that bridge, made us go back. Salvation turned to damnation, and the disaster caused by nature turned into an even greater one of our own doing. There were people who um, were injured, just seeking refuge, who could not get through and who were told by their own government that they were not allowed in. Of course, as the later investigations found, most of these rumors that ended up denying people their much-needed care were completely false. There was some looting going on, but even those reports were exaggerated. In fact, Sonnet found that opportunistic theft and burglary are historically rare in American disasters rare enough to be considered one of the myths of disaster, though it is one that nevertheless tends to be perpetrated by the stories about them. How come you took this bunch of prisoners? Uh, suspicion of looting. Stuff like you think you can get away with anything. Push people around when you want to, steal when you want to, make fun of men who have to work for a living, huh? Not today. And besides, as Sonnet argues, who cares if electronics are moving around without benefit of purchase when children's corpses are floating in filthy water? and stranded grandmothers are dying of heat and dehydration. It is noteworthy how this lack of faith in humanity and the concern with material goods over the safety of human lives generally doesn't arise from the bottom up, but rather from the top down. 
Meaning that selfish and panicky behavior we generally assume in times like these manifests itself not so much among ordinary citizens, but among those in positions of power and influence. I want every man, woman and child to understand how close we are to chaos. I want everyone to remember why they need us. In their research, Rutgers University professors Karen Jess and Lee Clark coined the term elite panic to conceptualize the specific conflicts that arise during a disaster not because of panic among the masses of ordinary citizens, but because of panic among a minority of elites. The distinguishing thing about elite panic as compared to regular people panic, Jess said, is that what elites will panic about is the possibility that we will panic. As Solnit also points out, while people in privileged positions tend to fear most is losing those positions. They fear disruption of the social order. They fear challenges to their legitimacy. And as she puts it, disasters provide both, lavishly. Our power comes from the perception of our power. Do you understand the damage this has done? Do you understand what's at stake? In a way, their fear is valid. Historically, disasters have more than once resulted in significant social change. After Chernobyl's nuclear catastrophe, for example, the poor response from the Soviet Union, as depicted here in the HBO series Chernobyl, directly contributed to the rise of Ukrainian nation-building, which ultimately played a major role in the collapse of the Soviet Union. This is what has always set our people apart. A thousand years of sacrifice in our veins. Every generation must know its own suffering. In another example, the Mexico earthquake of 85 led to great dissatisfaction among the people with their one-party system. As Professor of History Burton Kirkwood stated, out of the disaster emerged the realization that a viable civil society existed in Mexico. This revelation also caused many to consider why they needed a centralized state that so obviously could not care for its people. It is interesting to consider how exactly disasters can lead to social change. For it is not just because disasters have a tendency to reveal the flaws of a societal system and the shortcomings of safeguarding institutions. It is also because disasters reveal something deeper about ourselves that we tend to forget under normal circumstances. They reveal something fundamental about who we really are. I'm just so damn proud. We did this together. One remarkable observation made by Solnit was that most people not only become altruistic and caring during disasters, but also that they do it with so much joy. Joy in this sense doesn't refer to some light or shallow experience of happy feelings, which obviously would be hard to imagine in the face of great loss and devastation. Rather, it is about a deeper experience of belonging and solidarity of connecting to otherwise neglected needs for community and purpose. The positive emotions that arise in those unpromising circumstances demonstrate that social ties and meaningful work are deeply desired, readily improvised, and intensely rewarding. It is a feeling that you may have experienced to some degree during small ruptures in everyday life, like during a power outage or when you become stranded somewhere because of heavy snowfall. Now, um... I wanted to put in a bit of a hiatus here. So the one thing that I have expressed to you that was one of the biggest moments for me was uh, the reality that I had perceived uh, in 
my personal sphere had shattered. And while a tragedy such as an earthquake, a bomb going off, fires, floods, hurricanes, terrorist attacks, pretend terrorist attacks, well, all those are indeed moments of crises. I can assure you that the crisis that our nation is going through right now is beyond that. It's beyond an asteroid coming down and blowing you up. It's beyond aliens coming down and wanting to serve man, literally. Uh, it's beyond a hurricane. It's beyond an earthquake. It is beyond everything you can fathom that may physically cause you damage. The crisis that we have right now is seeing the reality and the illusion of the reality that you had was indeed an illusion. You're now starting to realize that you have been sleepwalking throughout life. You have been accepting things yourself. You are at fault of all of this and that you've had zero control and your freedom, your liberty, your nation, though on paper still valid, was not real. This is the crisis that we are going through. And the only way for you to embrace that horrific event, to embrace that your reality never existed, there was no normal, there was nothing. It was all controlled. You were always a subject. You always had invisible chains. The people that you elected never did anything you wanted. Everything that your nation is supposed to stand for was not being upheld. The only way that you can see that and really believe it is when you're, the curtains are down, you're watching the movie, and you're still missing the point. So you've been watching this movie for four years, slowly pulling that sleep out of your eye, starting to see what's going on, but you did not take any action. Many of you will be like, but I did. I donated to the GOP. I went out and voted. I wrote a letter. Maybe a day too late, maybe a minute too late. But in order for someone to come to this crisis and come out with joy to serve their fellow people, with joy to take on the work that was vested into them by the founding fathers, which is to actually participate in government, right? To actually participate. Because all of you right now listening, I guarantee you, almost... 99% of you have no idea who your state legislators are. I'll even take it on a more personal level. Probably don't even know your mayor, your city council, your county commissioners, your board of education people. You do not know. Your founding fathers said, in order to maintain your freedom, you must be part of it. So, again, your reality has now been shattered. You're being shown that your voice means nothing at the ballot box. You're not allowed to talk, nothing. And in order for you to see it even better, someone has to make it go away. But nevertheless, as always, Pandora even provided hope when she gave all the misery 
disease, right? She did. So I'm going to show you something we put together. To be fumigated out of there. Okay. Let me show this for you guys. Because, oh, I already know the news is fake. I already know they're all liars and cheats. I already know all they want is money. I already know all this, but Trump, 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 that doesn't help. And I know it sounds bad, but it doesn't help. And you're going to say, well, Tori, what else am I supposed to do? I have a job. I have kids. I have grandkids. I'm disabled. I'm retired. Well, everybody has a little part. And, you know, let's be honest, all of us are to blame. But nevertheless, there's always that little drip of, look, while you're in this turmoil and while you're going through this pain to see exactly what you never had thought you had and lost, here's a bit. Whether he knows it yet or not, he will be leaving. Uh, just because he might not want to move out of the White House doesn't mean we won't have an inauguration. But there is a process. It has nothing to do with if the certain occupant of the White House doesn't feel like moving and has to be fumigated out of there because the presidency is the presidency. It's not geography or location. Because the presidency is the presidency. It's not geography or location. Because the presidency is the presidency, it's not geography or location. Presidency is the presidency, it's not geography or location. So, so much for him. I wouldn't spend so much time on it. That's a victory for him because then we're not talking about your first more. So I thought I'd give that to you guys. Um, you want to watch it again? Whether he knows it yet or not, he will be leaving. Uh, just because he might not want to move out of the White House doesn't mean we won't have an inauguration. But there is a process. It has nothing to do with if the certain occupant of the White House doesn't feel like moving and has to be fumigated out of there because the presidency is the presidency. It's not geography or location because the presidency is the presidency. It's not geography or location. Because the presidency is the presidency. It's not geography or location. Presidency is the presidency. It's not geography or location. So, so much for him. I wouldn't spend so much time on it. That's a victory for him because then we're not talking about your first one. Yeah, so it's about geography or location. See, they tell you everything because this is a movie and they have to. Um, but as always, um, Pandora always gives that hope, even though she's giving a whiplash to people. And here's a little bit of whiplash from the past that I've been wanting to find and I can't believe I found it. I was so excited when I found it very excited. I can't even explain to you. Here we go. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. 
And every once in a while, I feel the need for what I'll just call a really powerful intellectual fix, a lift out of the doldrums of everyday discourse. And when I do, I almost invariably think about my friend, Neil Postman, author, scholar, and professor of communications, arts, and sciences at New York University, inviting him here to the open mind to share with me and with you some of his more outrageous recent opinions about the world around us. Now, last time we talked about his delightfully irreverent book, Conscientious Objections, stirring up trouble about language, technology, and education. Before that, we had focused quite seriously on Professor Postman's brilliant volume, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which I now as consistently assign to my students as I do Walter Lippmann's classic public opinion. But moving on in his own incomparably aphoristic way, Professor Postman has thematically turned now from amusing to informing ourselves to death. And I want first to ask this past master of the brilliant aphorism just what he means by this one. Nothing more uh, <clears throat> dazzling than that uh, we've entered a, uh, an age of information glut. That, uh, and this is something no culture has really faced before. The, uh, the typical situation is uh, information scarcity. But uh, beginning in the mid-19th century, I suppose, <clears throat> we, uh, uh, we began uh, what uh, you call the communications revolution. And uh, uh, going on into our own century, we now have flooded our culture with media of communication, technologies, that are devoted to filling up uh, our lives with information. And so for the first time, uh, too much information becomes now a problem to be solved. But that's a problem that would seem almost impossible to exist, certainly when I was growing up and even years later when you were growing up. I mean, the more you know, the better off you are. Isn't, isn't that the basis for our society? Well, I think that's the standard way of looking at things, that uh, lack of information can be very dangerous, and uh, we agree. But at the same time, too much information can be very dangerous because it can lead to a situation of meaninglessness, that is, people not having any basis for knowing what is relevant, what is irrelevant, what is useful, what is not useful that uh, they live in a culture that is simply committed through all of its media to generate tons and, uh, of information every hour without um, uh, categorizing it in any way for you so that you don't know what any of it means. <laughs> I, I mean, when you step off uh, an airplane at Kennedy, you get a sense of exactly what I'm talking about because there you, uh, you're, you're suddenly greeted with every possible technology telling you every possible piece of information so that there, um, uh, this becomes, I think, a threat, not only to one's peace of mind, but much more important than that, to one's sense of meaning because what uh, the problem is now not how to get information to people, but how to help people get some meaning 
from what's happening. Now, wouldn't the technological masters of our time say the answer to that will be found with technology itself? That well, technology will handle that problem? Well, I, I don't think so. I mean, it. it um, uh, some people say that the, the, the great uh, uh, long-range advantage of the computer will in fact be in that direction. Not that the computer will be a great information dispenser, but that it will be an information destroyer in that it will help people sort out the irrelevant from the relevant. But I, I don't see much of that yet happening. I mean, it, it, I do uh, grant your point that it is possible to invent technologies that will actually restrict for you the availability of information. But so far, uh, it seems very clear to me that the great uh, crisis in, in America, especially, by the way, in education, is that we are uh, overwhelmed, flooded, drowning, in information, no one knows what to do with it, no one knows how to classify it, and it's, uh, I think, the great uh, sort of symbol of this problem is to be found in that uh, E.D. Hirsch book, Cultural Literacy, in which he proposes uh, as a way of educating, educating our students that we, uh, we make sure students know this uh, list of 5,000 names and places and dates and aphorisms and so on. And that was in the index of his original book. But since then, he and his colleagues have produced the Cultural Literacy Encyclopedia so that there are probably 20,000 names and places and so on that you're supposed to know. And, but of course, uh, much of the list is arbitrary because for every item he has that you, uh, he thinks you should know, uh, and you could uh, name 10 things that you do know that are not there so that this is endless. And I didn't want to interrupt him, but if you heard him, this is from 1990. OK, he said the technology will be created to sequester and not allow you to have access to information as well. And so uh, this is uh, this is going to dovetail our entry into uh, the questions that we should be asking ourselves is how we allowed it to happen. With some organizing tale. Uh that most people can believe in. Uh, even the great story of inductive science has lost Lot, a, lot, a good deal of its meaning because it does not address the uh, several questions that all great narratives must address. Uh, where do we come from? Uh, what's going to happen to us? Where are we going, that is? And what are we supposed to do when we're here? Uh, science couldn't answer that, and technology doesn't. Even this great story of human progress um, uh, seems to be failing us at this point, but I do think you're right. The next great figure in in uh, in America and in, indeed in the world will be someone who provides us with some so, sort of narrative which would help us give structure to this information chaos. You know, in my time, the three presidents who were, in a sense, the most simplistic. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower, and Ronald Reagan. 
simplistic in the sense of being simple in terms of our interpretation of what they were saying. We could understand. They were telling, as you put it, they were telling a tale. There was a story. It was the story of America. Go to Lincoln before them. But well, I, I think you're right. That I, long I, ago. Yes, I think, Ray, but there were problems with Reagan's story, but he tried uh, uh, mightily to to tell us that it was mourning in America. Indeed. And that it was uh, it was somehow still the 19th century and uh, we still had neighborhoods and we were still a pious people and words like um, honor and fidelity were important he did communicate that sense but but it didn't uh, i mean people voted for him i think because they wanted very much to to believe that story the problem is that someone like reagan and uh, and uh, president bush as well who I think would also also attached himself to that story in some ways, uh, being free market extremists rather incidentally than conservatives, um, <clears throat> were very much interested in the full exploitation of new technologies for economic gain, and therefore tended to undermine the very institutions that made such ideas as a family loyalty and piety possible. But, but I think your observation is a good one. People like Roosevelt and Reagan, and they can be linked in this way, uh, were great storytellers in, in the sense that I mean it, that they tried to put forward um, a tale we could believe in. And Dukakis, I mean, the, my, my, uh, uh, is, it's, it's comic that Dukakis's tale was that he was an, a basic accountant who could manage this great corporate um, uh, enterprise we call America. It's an awful story. Neil, do you believe that our involvement with technology uh, makes it impossible or less possible for us to be able to turn to, to create and then to turn to the kind of leadership of a great storyteller like Reagan or Roosevelt? or Eisenhower? No, well, I no, because I, I mean, it does make it more difficult because technology itself, Dick, is a great story. The idea that it is through uh, technological progress that we will achieve happiness and that therefore it is a good thing for us to adapt ourselves and change our culture to fit the needs of technology, because this is the, the tech, it is on the wings of technology that we will find paradise. That in itself is a, is a story in which many uh, people uh, believe. But I think that is beginning to fail. Now one hears of the great story of ecology, of stewardship of the earth beginning to to take hold with some people. And that may be um, a wonderful new story that will capture the imagination of people, even those who at the moment seem committed to the great uh, technology as progress story. Let's, let's go back to the, to the, to the very um, phrase that you have used, informing ourselves to death. Uh, is there an antidote before we uh, are... Uh, are done in by technology? 
Well, of course, I, I think that, uh, you know, as someone who's been in education all my life, and that's, for me, one of the great stories, <clears throat> narratives, <clears throat> that um, people are modifiable uh, through education and their beliefs can be changed. I think that through education, we can make people rather more aware of uh, what our, what kind of bargain technology is, helping them to distance themselves to some extent. I think that is possible because, um, see, Americans are in love with technology, which is a problem in uh, helping them to develop any distance from it. Don't I, you think that technology well-programmed, uh, is it, is it, do you reject that belief, that faith, that technology well-programmed by a storyteller can make us free? What do you mean by well-programmed? I'm it's talking about the kind phrase. of. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm talking about the kind of storytelling that you look for. I'm talking about the kind of narrative, the kind of larger picture of our purpose that you have referred to here. I think technology understood as a great Faustian bargain. Technology that giveth, technology giveth and technology taketh away. Uh, if, we, if we understand that tale, then with every new technology, we would have to ask, what will it give us and what will it take, don't take you, from us? Don't you really mean not what will it give us inevitably or what will it take from us inevitably, but what we can make it give us and what we can prevent it from taking away from us? Okay, but we, we, we can't be so naive as to think that we are completely in control of, of any technology. If not we, then who? Well, to some extent, the technology has its own agenda. I mean, if you build a 747, you may not want to build one. But once you build a 747, you're not going to use it to carry commuters from Scarsdale to New York. Once you build a 747, the structure of the machine itself will tell you how you're going to use it. And if you build a combustion engine machine, well, you could use an automobile to raise chickens in, but it's very unlikely. That, in other words, every technology has an agenda if of its own. If we understand what that agenda is, we have several options. One, we may not want the technology to begin with, or second, if we can't help getting it, we may want to, uh, through social policy, political action, and education, in some way, uh, minimize its negative consequences as we perceive them and predict them, and even maximize its uh, constructive uh, possibilities. But it seems to me that you confuse, you mix up the 747 with the technological ability to fly or call it whatever you, whatever you will, you make the inevitable outcome of certain inventions and certain manipulations of our technology, a 747 that holds 452 people or whatever, and is not going to go to Scarsdale from New York City, but it's going to go a great distance, creating the ability to travel great distances for many people, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, by increasing social mobility, maybe breaking up uh, the structure of the family. 
I mean, one, suppose it were 1903 now, uh, Dick, and we knew as much as we know now about the automobile. We'd never let it happen. Well, I don't know. I mean, if we made, uh, uh, put on a chalkboard on one side, all the advantages of having an automobile, and, and they would be considerable. And then on the other side, we put the disadvantages. Our air would become poisoned. Uh, our cities choked. The suburbs would be created, uh, et cetera. And, oh, and we must include the, the uh, uh, beauty of our natural landscape would be sacrificed to some extent. And then we presented it to the American public. Said, well, here's a new technology. This is what we will get. This is what it will do. And this is what it will undo. Now, let's have a plebiscite. Well, I think Americans would say, let's do it. Uh, but uh, if we put it that way, they would also say, let's do it. But is it possible for us to minimize in some way the negative consequences and even maximize the positive consequences? Now, that would represent um, a, a level of awareness concerning technological change that I think could uh, be the basis of a brand new story that is consciousness of the fact that we are technological creatures and have to learn how to control it and ourselves in the face of technology. Now we're just getting to where we ought to start this discussion and of course I'm getting the signal we have no more time. Uh, so we'll do it some controls. other controls. <laughs> <laughs> no, what we did with the technology uh -huh. Neil Postman, thank you so much for joining me again on The Open Mind. Thank you. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope so what did you think of hearing the man who had written the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which, which like I said, he said that we will be so bombarded with information, and without it being put together, it can be used as a vehicle to break up every notion you have and dispel it and bring you into hedonism. You know, a lot of people are have no problem whatsoever forfeiting their rights for the sake of pleasure and easement. And the, and the problem that that I've been reiterating is that we lack empathy these days. We lack unconditional empathy and love. And that has to go back to our public school system. It's the worst. Resist much, obey little. Once unquestioning obedience, once fully enslaved. Once fully enslaved, no nation, state, city of this earth ever afterward resumes its liberty. These were the words of caution which the great poet Walter Whitman offered to his fellow Americans. For Whitman recognized that crucial to a free and flourishing society are men and women who are willing to question and even resist authority when necessary. But today, very few of us live by the ideal espoused by Whitman. Rather, blind obedience is the norm. We have become populations of sheep, easily to be herded into the chains of tyranny. But what has led those of us in the West to largely shun the advice of Whitman? In this video, we will examine two institutions that have played an integral role in the breeding of a passive citizenry the compulsory state-run education system, which in North America is called the public school system, and the mainstream media. 
Public schooling is viewed as one of the shining lights of the modern Western world. Who could question the value of an institution that provides free and compulsory education for all? But as with many institutions of our day, the textbook picture of how the institution should work greatly diverges from the reality of how it does work. If public schools taught individuals how to think, if they promoted intellectual curiosity and produced citizens healthy in body and mind, then few would question their value. But beneath the veneer presented by the bureaucrats that run this institution, a darker reality emerges. Or as John Taylor Gatto, a former teacher turned one of public schooling's greatest critics, writes, Schools are intended to produce formulaic human beings whose behavior can be predicted and controlled. To a very great extent, schools succeed in doing this, but in a national order in which the only successful people are independent, self-reliant, confident, and individualistic, the products of schooling are irrelevant. Well-schooled people are irrelevant. They can sell film and razor blades, push paper and talk on telephones, or sit mindlessly before a flickering computer terminal. But as human beings, they are useless. Useless to others and useless to themselves. Noam Chomsky echoed this sentiment, writing in his book, Understanding Power, Given the external power structure of the society in which they function, the institutional role of the schools, for the most part, is just to train people for obedience and conformity, and to make them controllable and indoctrinated. To some, this may sound like heresy, but a study of history reveals that this was the intention from the very start. The state-run school systems in the West were modeled off the factory style of education first introduced in Prussia in the early 1700s. What shocks, writes Gatto, is that we should so eagerly have adopted one of the very worst aspects of Prussian culture, an educational system deliberately designed to produce mediocre intellects, to hamstring the inner life, to deny students appreciable leadership skills, and to ensure docile and incomplete citizens, all in order to render the populace manageable. Albert Einstein, an individual who reached heights of genius rarely seen, did not credit his compulsory schooling with his intellectual development. Reflecting back on his school years, Einstein noted that after completing his final examinations, his interest in the field he would go on to revolutionize was all but dead. I found the consideration of scientific problems, he wrote, distasteful to me for an entire year. Einstein believed that one of the major flaws of compulsory state-run education systems is their forced style of teaching. It is, in fact, nothing short of a miracle, he wrote, that the modern methods of instruction have not yet entirely strangled the holy curiosity of inquiry. It is a very grave mistake to think that the enjoyment of seeing and searching can be promoted by means of coercion and a sense of duty. After well over a decade of indoctrination in the school system, few emerge with a great thirst for knowledge and a curiosity toward the many mysteries of the world. Instead, as Bruce Levine writes in his book Resisting Illegitimate Authority, by the time a student graduates, they have been bred to be passive, to be directed by others, to take seriously the rewards and punishments of authority, to pretend to care about things that they do not care about, and that one is impotent to change one's dissatisfying situation. But if our schooling cannot be relied upon to generate the critical and curious minds needed to protect a society from the actions of corrupted authorities, can the mainstream media play this role? While there has been an increasing skepticism toward this institution in recent years, distaste and distrust toward the mainstream media has a long history. 
I have given up newspapers, wrote Thomas Jefferson, in exchange for Tacitus and Thucydides, for Newton and Euclid, and I find myself much the happier. Nietzsche, one of the most intellectually free and curious minds of history, was also no fan of the mainstream media. Sick are they always. They vomit their bile and call it a newspaper. Richard Weaver, a professor at the University of Chicago in the first half of the 20th century, found it ironic that while we have freed ourselves from the Earth-centered view of the cosmos, we have all the while dove headlong into an illusory view of the world created by the mainstream media. And while Weaver focuses on newspapers in the following passage, as they were the dominant medium of his day, his words are even more applicable today, where modern technology offers far better tools for the manipulation of the masses. A great point is sometimes made of the fact that modern man no longer sees above his head a revolving dome with fixed stars. True enough, but he sees something similar when he looks at his daily newspaper. The newspaper is a man-made cosmos of the world of events around us at the time. For the average reader, it is a construct with a set of significances which he no more thinks of examining than did his pious forebear of the 13th century think of questioning the cosmology. So I want to stop it right there and just say, how many times have we said your reality is constructed by others? And we're so busy looking down, we don't look up. Your media, your consumer industry, your schools, everything that has been injected into you from the day you were born has been constructing their own reality for you to dwell in. And the problem is, is that when artificial intelligence is injected in this, they can predict with mathematical precision how you will react, how you will respond, and who moves along. Now, Einstein, they say, has a very big IQ. Now, I've said this, and a lot of people are like, mm, BS. Well, mine is way bigger than his. And I found out last week that one of my offspring, they were tested 159. I guess it's genetics. Maybe. Or maybe it is, is that I've taught my children to question everything. This is something that a lot of people say, well, your kids are defiant. No, they should question everything and stand firm to what they like. I'll tell you, I have more disagreements with my children in arguing uh, how things are, history, situations than anyone else. And it is through dialogue and arguments that people evolve. Now, what your schools and your media are doing is do not question us. Do you remember when WikiLeaks dropped the some of the emails, the Podesta ones and the Clinton ones? Don't read them. We'll tell you what to read. It's illegal to read it when it's not. Don't look. Don't look. Listen to us. We're the media. Actually, we're the media. We drive the conversation. Let me show you how we do that. So remember how Looking Glass came on, right? It just came on, right? It was up and all this stuff. And not everything has been put out there, right? Nothing has been put out there yet. Yet, for some reason, this came into the news yesterday. When it's supposed to be like, what did mainstream media tell you? The right-wing media? Oh, that's old news. It's old news. Really? Then why is it coming into discussion? 
And now at the center of the zero experience, Hunter Biden scandal and Biden, let's see, foreign syndicate issue. Well, is Hunter Biden's laptop, which reportedly contains, well, a lot of disturbing material. Now, computer repair shop owner, John Paul Mac Isaac, he turned the laptop over to the FBI in December of 2019 after Hunter failed to retrieve it from his store 90 days later. And after facing endless slander and death threats, he even closed down a shop for a while and went out of town. He has now come forward to tell his side of the story. John Paul joins us for an exclusive interview. John Paul, sir, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Evening, Sean. Let's get into the document side of it. So there were, would it be a fair statement to say that what you saw concerned you, uh, that you desperately wanted to get this out of your shop, as you said? Correct. So, so on both fronts there, I just want to make a, a thing. Let me, let me go through the, the timeline with you, if I may, because you, you handed this over to the FBI. They finally took possession of it December 9, 2019. Tell us what happened. Uh, they came to the shop originally. They were planning to make a forensic copy of the drive. They couldn't guarantee that they could take the, uh, the equipment away from me. Uh, so when they showed up and they handed me a subpoena requesting the drive, the paperwork, and the laptop, I was overjoyed that they were going to basically meet my demands, if you will. I wanted it out of my shop, and I wanted some kind of paper trail, some level of protection from the FBI. So I was pretty happy that they uh, took it. A couple of things happened during that exchange. A couple of things were said that kind of, again, threw up some red flags with the FBI, um, just how they wanted me to handle it if he could, should come looking for it, how to contact them, how to stall that whoever's looking for it so they could make arrangements to have the equipment returned to me. Uh, it, it, it kind of, uh, it, it, uh, I was concerned. In, so December 19th, to remind everybody, because impeachment on the issue of Ukraine took place with President Trump in January of 2020. So I'm going to stop it there. So as you can see, you can plainly see who the news really is. And that's you. We were talking about it. The website got almost a million hits within 48 hours. Why? Because people want to know the truth. People want to see what's really going on. People want to see, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here? This looks pretty weird. So if you go to www.whitehousepedophiles, Hold on, uh, pedophiles. Uh, you know what? I should do it with you guys watching so you can see because a lot of people are like, I'm not going to click on that. And it's just, uh, it was more of a gaslighting situation. You know what? Actually, I should go to the photos. What do you think, counterpart? I should do that. I should have you guys look at, I need to share this because I did this <laughs> so well. So, um, you know, sometimes you have to use AI for your own benefit. So you're going to have a sneak peek into something that we will make public at some point. This is it, right? Yeah, this is it. Wait. Okay. So what I did was I used AI to my benefit and loaded all the photos into um, an AI system that would, whoa, was that a bad picture or what? I'm just going to skim right through it really quickly and go to the more sensible ones. Let's go down here. We've recreated the whole uh, laptop. so. Um, oh my gosh, thank God that wasn't aired. Thank gosh. Okay. Yes. 
Thank you, technology, for not doing that to me. Because there were some really bad pictures that I just scrolled by. Um, so I actually have it on um, a Google Photos. And it pulled out all the metadata I needed. Uh, so now you guys can see it. And thank goodness, um, bad ones didn't pop up. There's no other ugly ones down here, right? No, there isn't. These are pretty, they're just private stuff. Public, maybe. But you know what the interesting ones are? Is um, these travel photos to Jerusalem, right? Yeah, that one. Travel photos to Jerusalem, uh, where they went with Air Force Two, right? Um, let's see. You can see all the data here where we pulled it from. So there's no uh, if, ands, or what's. The dates, this is from 2016. We have treasure troves. It goes back to 2008, doesn't it? Yep. Sorry, I'm having some sidebar with my counterpart. I just want you guys to see yourself, what we have. So the, the question that a lot of people have is, how is he not arrested for these things? I mean, look, we have nice um, photos here. Interesting. That's, uh, can you see it? Fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. Wait, let's go to the really cool ones. <laughs> Takes a lot of self. He's not bad looking, right? But even this person's like, what's he doing? He was trying on glasses and asking. Uh, here's some really cool stuff. What's he? What's this? Was he jumping on a bird with his dad? On April 28, 2016, where was he going? That was after their Jerusalem trip. Wait a minute. Was it the time that he was going to Serbia? Shit. No, that was August, right? August is when he went to Kosovo, right? It was August. Where was he going here? I mean, they jumped the bird and they've got, you know, things here, but we'll figure it out. We'll 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 crunch the data. Because it seems that the next day he was at the Vatican. So I guess they jumped the bird to Rome. Because here he is at the Vatican. He actually took a picture of his thing to show someone exactly where he was the next day. After hopping a bird with dad. Right? He hopped the bird with dad. See, this is it. This is from Hunter Biden's laptop. We actually recreated his laptop with everything we had. So the metadata here shows that this picture was taken on April 28th, 2016 uh, with an Apple iPhone 6. Uh, and the time was 7.46 p.m. for mountain time. Yeah, he jumped a bird. You can see that. And um, the next day, he was at the Vatican took this picture on the Friday, the next day, right? So I guess they were going to Rome. Here he is at the Vatican at 2 p.m., 2.30 p.m. He was within the Vatican borders and he took pictures. There he is within the borders of the Vatican. These are the walls of the Vatican, dreaded walls. I've told you guys how I went to go in and I needed a passport. Here he is in there in Vatican City. I won't scroll up too high because that's where all the pictures get weird, don't they? We have a lot of information at all. That's pretty troubling.
all the way down, as you can see, to 2008, all the way up to 2019, January. And why? If his, oh, there's bad photos. Thank you. If, 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 um, if people understand how uh, iClouds work, they still sync. And so when things were being put together, uh, this is how it came to yeah, nudity. So let's take that off. I was being shouted at too. Don't do it. Don't do it. So it's kind of funny how we bring up these conversations and suddenly, uh, you know, you have this going wild on other media. And the question you should ask yourself is, huh, so we were having an impeachment because the president or whatever with Ukraine and all this, but we had all this evidence, which we do, emails, texts, documents, of quid pro quo and pushing along, selling our nation and fixing elections. We have documentations of them meddling with other people's elections. Uh, we have uh, uh, headquarters where the elections were being done. We have so much. And I think I should go to that page that I said I was going to go to. So let me share the the page because what was it? It was, um, uh, say it. It was um, whitehousepedophiles.com, right? What was the other one? I'm thinking Hunter Biden likes pizza. Huh? Hunter loves pizza. Oh, and Hunter Biden F's kids. So it sounds really raunchy, but we got the domain White House Pedophiles. Typing it in, you guys. Com takes you directly to crimes against children. And here is where you see evidence that the victim's mom knew your president select knew, the therapist knew, they all knew, and she was only 13 at the time. So here's where you're going to find all the text messages so you can see them talking about it and how she was blackmailing for, I, I think, money. And he was really frustrated. Here are very suggestive photos with exit data so that you can see it, um, photos that were being taken. And then bringing in the psychiatrist who was on the news and had another laptop. There's more. Uh, you know, everybody, the FBI and everybody knew that he was a pedophile. Uh, completely knew. Uh, this is a young lady, um, you know, that he would have pictures of and exchange messages. Here's them in the bed together, um, which could be construed innocent if you could see the other photos that we have seen. So th this is quite astonishing how these crimes against children have been allowed to perpetuate. I think um, I want to take you guys to um, right here. Where is it? Is it under iMessages? I think it is. Robert Hunter chatting with his pimp, or it's a she. We're pulling some data together. But here you see him ordering prostitutes, freaking out about prostitutes. The pimp was getting condoms, asking him what type of prostitutes he likes, um, you know, uh, freaking out because some prostitute had the police come. Uh, money. 
um, you know, everything. So you can see it yourself. This isn't, uh, this isn't fake news. This is actual real news. News that you want to know. News that should be stated by everyone and their mother. News that a lot of outlets have. They have a lot of this. Obviously, a lot of them don't do the work to find things because within there, you can find election meddling. You can find uh, spending U.S. tax dollars. You can find so much in there, but yet nobody wants to talk about it. Hmm. That's the thing. Nobody wants to talk about it. So the question you should ask yourself is how treasonous is this and how bad does it look? But it stems back to what I've always been arguing, the judicial system. So I want us to go to Article 3, and this is how we're going to end, of the U.S. Constitution. As long as we have the Constitution, let's use that. As long as we're waking up right now and we're realizing what is going on, we our reality is being shattered, you're getting angry, you're getting frustrated, but it is 2021. And with the realization that your reality has been shattered, with your realization of what weapons the mainstream media, cyberspace, social media, videos, audio, books are, you can then use your own discernment. Hence why I have been pounding and pounding and pounding away how important it is to know thyself. If you know thyself, you're able to use discernment. You are not groupthink, are you? So here is... Um, a great explanation of Article 3. I'm Walter Isaacson of the Aspen Institute, and I'm with Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center, talking about the Constitution. Let's look at Article 3. That's the one that sets up the judiciary. It says the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. So what are they doing here, making a third branch of government? They are making a third branch, and they're putting the Supreme Court at the head of that branch, and it's fully equal to the other two. On the other hand, Alexander Hamilton said that the judicial branch would be the least dangerous branch because it had neither purse nor sword. And I think it's fair to say that the framers spent less time worrying about the nature of the judici judiciary than they did about Congress and the president. In section two, they enumerate what cases the courts are supposed to look at. It seems pretty narrow. Why is that? It is. Look at this. The original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, that is the cases they have to hear whether they want to or not, is a relatively small category of pretty uh, technical cases affecting ambassadors, maritime jurisdiction, controversies between two states. All this means that the Supreme Court has incredibly broad jurisdiction or, and discretion to hear or not to hear whatever cases they like, and the number of cases they have to hear is pretty small. Well, the main thing we figure that the Supreme Court does is it reviews laws passed by Congress and actions of the president to see whether or not they're constitutional. But I'm not sure I see that in Article 3. Well, that's a very good point. Where does this power of judicial review, as it's called, come from? Judicial review, the power to strike down laws that violate the Constitution. So when we say the Affordable Care Act, it seems unconstitutional. Let's go to the Supreme Court, see if they'll strike it down. That's what you mean by judicial review, right? Exactly right. Judges taking a law passed by Congress, comparing it to the Constitution, and saying whether or not it passes muster. So you're right that the words judicial review don't appear in the Constitution. But in fact, the power was deeply rooted in English common law. There were cases from the 1760s where courts had struck down uh, laws that violated common law. But really, the theory comes from Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 78. Here's what Alexander Hamilton said. He said that 
When there's a conflict between the will of the people represented by the Constitution and the will of the people's servants represented by laws passed by ordinary legislators, then judges should prefer that of the master to that of the servant, that of the uh, principal to that of the agent. Did you get that? So it, the judges are supposed to rule in our favor, not in the favor of those that serve us. We are the master, they are the servants. Pay attention. This is how you see that we have a corrupt judicial system because they do not align with our values, but with those of those that decided to pass whatever law they wanted. So the entire theory of judicial review expressed in this idea of popular sovereignty is based on the notion that the Constitution stands for the will of the people and an ordinary law passed by Congress just represents the will of our representatives. You just invoked the Federalist Papers, and that was sort of the documents that Madison and Jay and Hamilton and others worked together on to explain what the Constitution meant. So when we're interpreting this Constitution, does it make sense to go back to those papers? Is that why you did so? It's, it's a great question, and I think the answer is yes. It's certainly relevant to ask what Madison and Hamilton and Jay wrote in the Federalist Papers, not only because they were such important members of the Constitutional Convention, and because Madison is considered the principal framer of the Constitution, but because the Federalist Papers were the public documents that we, the people who ratified the Constitution, read. And when we, care, when we try to figure out the original understanding of the Constitution, we're less interested in what James Madison thought than what the people who ratified the Constitution thought because it was the ratification that breathed life into the Constitution and made it fair for us to consider it as representing the people's sovereign will. So that's why the Federalist Papers are important. So what was the case, or when did we finally get it settled, that when there was a dispute between two branches of government, it would be the Supreme Court who had the final word? Well, the case was Marbury versus Madison, and it was decided by John Marshall. And it was such a fascinating case because it was a political conflict between Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall that could have meant the end of the judiciary. First of all, Marshall and Jefferson, who were distant cousins, hated each other. They, they generally- That's what happens to two gentlemen from Virginia, right? <laughs> it's just, it's very tough. And I think there was some family uh, bad blood. They had this uh, family feud and essentially Here's the situation. In the waning days of the Adams administration, John Adams and his secretary of state, who happened to be John Marshall, had stood up all night signing these commissions for various federal officials. Marshall, as secretary of state, was supposed to deliver the commissions, but he forgot to do it. He was busy with other stuff. So then Thomas Jefferson gets into office, and one guy who was supposed to have gotten his commission, uh, Marbury, says, I'm entitled to my commission. Supreme Court force uh, President Jefferson to deliver the commission. So here's the dilemma. If John Marshall, who's now sitting on the Supreme Court, and by the way, should have re refused to hear the case since he'd been responsible for the mess that led to it in the first place. If Marshall says to Thomas Jefferson, deliver the commissions, Jefferson's going to ignore him and reveal the court to be a paper tiger. If Marshall uh, backs down and refuses to say he has the power to do anything, he'll look weak. So he exercises an act of judicial jujitsu, which in retrospect is sort of dazzling in its chutzpah, to mix my metaphors. Well, definitely brilliant. <laughs> Marshall says... Yes, Marshall's uh, Marbury's entitled to his commission. Uh, it should have been delivered, and therefore, uh, usually for every right, there's a remedy. However, and here's the kicker, the federal act that authorizes uh, Marshall uh, Marbury to receive his commission itself is unconstitutional because it exceeds the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court that we just read together. So it's a temporary victory for President Jefferson, who doesn't have to deliver the commission, but a long-term victory for federal power because Marshall has established this power of judicial review. It's an incredible example of long-term thinking. 
And so this is 1803, about 20 years after the Constitution is done. And that really sets in stone that we have three branches that are pretty much co-equal, because even though the judiciary doesn't do quite as much, it has the final word when there's a dispute. It does have the final word, John Marshall said. It's a constitution we're expanding, and at the very least, all three branches of government have to agree that a law is constitutional before it can go into effect. Jeffrey Rosen, thank you. Thank you. All right, so that was our education for today in regards to the judicial system, because that's going to be coming up very soon. See, the whole point of this impeachment is going to work in our favor. This is what we have to wait for. And like I said, when she was talking yesterday, it's going to be eight days. And the House was sent home for the week. Their schedule cleared. No work next week. So that's the eight days. And uh, it was actually McConnell that said that they're not going to be starting anything about the impeachment until, well, seven days from today. So in seven days, which was eight days yesterday. And I kind of stated it because for some reason, people want so much affirmation for what they hear because they're so bombarded with garbage, with garbage, with opportunists that are preying on your hopes, on your dreams, and on your fears. It, it upsets me because I don't like to uh, you know, abide by that. I shouldn't have to point out anything. You should be able to make that discernment yourself. So this is the last time I'm ever going to do that. I'm making that clear. So I told you yesterday, eight days, now you see it. And yesterday was that day where it started. Everybody wants affirmation so they can have whatever idea or manufactured plan that they think they have in their mind is happening. And everyone's telling you their versions of whatever. I'm telling you facts. I told you eight days, there we go. Now. The real thing is, is how many of you will stand behind your president when he goes to trial? Because it is during that trial that everything will come to light. They are getting absolutely everything they ask for. Remember what our president said? Impeachment's not going to do anything. Be careful what you wish for, right? Be careful what you wish for. And again, this is all a show. So all you have to do is watch. And a year ago, February 6th, I told you about SCOTUSgate. I just gave you a great little clip that you can go back and watch later, educating you on how SCOTUS is supposed to respond as opposed to how they've been responding because we will be demanding that. Again, it's the masters, not the servants. Pelosi, servant. McConnell, servant. Your congressman, servant. Your congresswoman, servant. Your senators, servants. Who's the master? You're the master. You get it? This is what you need to understand. Uh, you need to start taking a step back, going to the moon and realizing your whole reality was fake. Everything that you've been taught is fake. The news is fake. They're constructing a reality and keeping you in that bubble and you're sticking with it. Again, SCOTUSgate, 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 SCOTUSgate. I made it clear and I even talked about on February 6, 2020, I even said, oh, maybe we'll have that conversation of how they tried to annul or delay the inauguration for President Trump. Because everything, every lie will be revealed. Every obfuscation, every tool of obfuscation will be shattered. Why? Because the people willed it. And that's how it happens. This is how it is. 
And we have all the evidence we need for foreign interference, for meddling with our elections. And it seems like everybody and their mother is like, there was nothing there. Don't book, dear. Are you dumb? There was nothing there. He's duly elected. Uh, I see. If he was, then this. So before we go, let's just share a little bit of this here. I just want to show this. So going down my Twitter feed, we have an excellent article by the Babylon Bee that could definitely be reality, which is Biden tells freezing troops sleeping in garages to be patient until he can ship them to Iraq. Because apparently he wants to ship troops back to Iraq because, you know, we have bombs and stuff going on in Iraq already. And then we have all these statements from people. Where's that? There was one person who actually posted my old tweet. I, I could have sworn I saw it. I need to find it. Mm, it was here. My old tweet was here. Someone sent it to me and tweeted it out. Great. See, I thought that, like, where is this? Sorry, guys, I'm scrolling real quick. Oh, this is quite an interesting one. We can confirm that the DIA does not construe the Carpenter decision to require judicial warrant endorsing purchase or use of commercially available data for intelligence purposes. Carpenter involved in an administrative subpoena from law enforcement authorities to secure cell site records revealing whereabouts of. Remember what kind of subpoena I told you that the attorney general used on me? Yeah, it was called an administrative subpoena, completely unconstitutional, just so you know, where he had all my bank records, phone records, whatever records he wants. And I guess maybe, uh, well, that's, whoa, I just had a train of thought. I'll remember that for myself to help me pacify um, when I'm angry. Oh, wow. Okay, here it is. So he says, catalyst or victory? Don't know. Okay, here we go. Here's the tweet. So I tweeted that out on February 6, 2020. Who's ready? Secret meeting between Chief Justice Roberts, Brennan, Clapper, Comey, Barack, Lynch, etc. in January 2017, trying to figure out how to delay, and he has it all, how to delay inauguration or annul the election, SCOTUSgate. And it had started right before my birthday in March, and on 5-5, it was when uh, Chief Justice Roberts got hurt. And then people found out. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg was sick again. Because, man, they keep talking about R <laughs> RBG. And everybody keeps like, well, you were wrong about that. And I'm like, was I? Oh, let me guess. Because the rest of the world says one thing. It's got to be true. I see. That's the way it goes now. We're going with groupthink again. And that's the problem. Groupthink. So for those of you that are a little bit woke or starting to see the structure of this uh, broken system that they've been selling us, uh, this broken system of lies that has crumbled right in front of their eyes. And for the past four years, the president of the United States, the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, has been helping you see through this fog of lies through this intricate, weaved reality that they've put you in, this bubble that you can't escape. And now all the light is coming in and you're starting to see it because, like I said, 2021 is where the work begins. On that note, okay, I should share this, actually. Yesterday, I spoke with a state legislator in Ohio 
um, you know, telling them Monday morning on your desks, you will have a letter from the people advising you that we are asking you to do this. Um, the question then was, are you getting signatures to back that letter up? And I said, no, I'm a constituent. I'm going to send it to you and you're going to respond within seven days. I explained to him what the letter is going to have. And the letter would clearly state that I demand that my legislature get together and afford me the avenues to be able to redress my grievances as afforded to me by the uh, Fourth Amendment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He says, listen, we don't do that. Maybe you can petition and put a new bill. That's how we do it. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't asking you. I was telling you. And, you know, he, he was like, well, I, I don't see how you're telling me to do anything. Process and procedure. I was like, well, we don't like the process and procedures. And those need to change. Uh, he says, well, uh, you know, Tori, no offense, but, you know, there's rules and regulations. I say, okay, how's this? I'm going to give you the letter and you can respond to me with all your processes and regulations and everything because that'll give me the go ahead to descend in your district. And within a day with just a couple hundred people, I can descend with 3000 people. If I have to, we will have all the signatures we need to remove you and every single one of you. Well, I, I understand that you guys are, I said, I, there's no question here, right? There's no, uh, we're going to be following this and that. You want us to follow procedure? We'll do it. And at the time that we're collecting signatures from small businesses, showing them how much money you got from Pfizer, how you're invested in a mask manufacturing company, and how you're sitting there on your throne, while we're connecting signatures to remove you, we'll, be rem we'll have a backup petition to remove the Secretary of State, the AG, and the governor. And people are going to do this. And you either like it or not, you, you're going to have to explain to your kids. And actually, I'm going to put that in my letter too. You will decide, will you be a chump and get removed and impeached? Or are you going to sit on the right side of history? Because your kids are watching too. And that's how you will be known. So we had a very nice conversation and he sounded a little bit worried and he should. And everywhere across the nation, they should all be very worried. So um, uh, this weekend, we will be uh, launching uh, the site where everyone from Ohio uh, will um, put out communications for you guys to join in. Uh, we'll have like an organized uh, group place, every single state legislature uh, that we have with the research on their finances, who, what, when, where, how, uh, packets, because when we descend in their districts, we need to have all the bullet points. This is how much money they got from pharma. This is how much money they got from this. They don't care about you. And those of you that are going to be participating in those districts, I want you to seriously consider taking their place. Ah, that's also part of the conversation I said. I said to him, well, we're going to replace you. He was like, listen, to replace me, you have to register with the GOP. You have to. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no one's ever giving any money to the GOP we're going to fund the candidate and they won't even need money because you know what we'll do. We'll actually see if we have to run another parallel petition to say Joe Schmo is running. That's his name. He's going to be taking his place because he'll be your servant rather than your master. That sounds better, right? So they're upset and they know what's coming and I let them know because, you know, letting them know what you're doing <clears throat> is the best way to make someone trip up too right? You give them your plan and they trip up. 
So while they're saying, oh, you need to run someone, it's going to be like, no, we're not going to run. We're going to replace. And there's avenues to do that, actually. And so for those of you that are going to be uh, participating in the district removals within the state of Ohio that are in the Ohio group, I um, would sincerely promote you guys uh, to uh, jump in and be the voice of the people around you, be the voice for your neighbor, be the voice for your brothers and sisters that are there and listen to them. And listen, you don't need to have a background in law. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to be, you know, a huge businessman or car salesman, snake oil salesman, or like Congressman Gonzalez, a football player, who's actually quite smart too. What you have to be is willing to listen and then, you know, take advice from people that, you know, you're, you're going to be paying someone with our tax dollars to, to explain it to you. I mean, when it comes to legal things, I need lawyers to explain stuff to me too. I mean, I could be smart, but I'm not, you know, I'm not fluent in legalese, right? So you hire someone that'll help you understand. That's what servants do. They learn and they watch YouTube videos, I guess, right? <laughs> in this day and age. Or, you know, you're, you're going to be serving the people. You're going to be serving the people. So please take that into account and have that in the back of your mind. Uh, it's not a big deal representing. It is a big deal, but it's not. I think they make it more glamorous and everything than they really have to. So um, uh, this weekend uh, in the Telegram group, uh, we'll be dropping that. I know there's two Ohio groups. I wanted them to merge, but I've just been so busy um, with other things and life. Um, but I've, I'm getting this paid service so that way we can use it um, and um, organize ourselves because Ohio is just the beginning. It's the lowest hanging fruit. You'll be surprised how many of these idiots have taken money from Epstein and Wexner from Pedos. Dang, it's going to be lit. So on that note, guys, uh, I'm going to let you guys go. I'm going to wish you a fabulous evening. Um, I know I missed movie night last Sunday. I will not miss it this Sunday. I got carried away with um, Looking Glass. God bless. Set the world on fire I just want to start A flame in your heart In my heart I have but one desire All ambition for worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love, and with your admission, you'd feel the same. I'll have reached the goal I'm dreaming of. Believe me, I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start